Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, still part of the section of wisdom literature. What, though, Mike, is the book of Proverbs about, essentially? Well, Proverbs is essentially a collection of sort of short, punchy sayings that it is really looking to bring God's wisdom into everyday life. So it's not theoretical, it's rooted, it's trying to take the wisdom of God and say, and this is how that can get worked out in everyday life. So it's a very, very practical book. Wisdom of God, what do you mean by that? The wisdom of God, this is God's way of doing things, God's way of seeing things, God's way of understanding things. You know, if there is a God out there who created all things, then surely he understands them all. He who made everything knows how they work best. He also knows how they don't work best. So in Proverbs as well, as well as counsel for, this is the best way to get this out of life from the one who made it. There's also counseling Proverbs about, and by the way, don't walk this way in life because the one who made this knows that this is not good. So it's really about God's understanding, God's perspective, God's heart, because this whole world, this whole creation is his. He designed it. He made it. And, you know, if you want to know how something works, then the best person to go and ask how it works is the guy who designed it and the guy who made it. And so that's what we get in this book. Go back to the one who made everything, who gave us everything, and in doing that, get, get his heart for how this is supposed to function, how it's supposed to work. And when you follow his ways, that's when you will enjoy it to the best. Is wisdom more than just common sense? Oh, yes, absolutely, because, you know, common sense sometimes would cause us to do the very opposite of what God says. There are many examples, stories in the Bible where people followed common sense. In a previous episode, we saw how King Saul used common sense that when the prophet Samuel didn't turn up, he thought he'd better offer the sacrifice instead. But then Samuel did turn up. And that whole incident revealed what was really in Saul's heart. So common sense is not always the best thing. That doesn't mean we've got to put our brains into the freezer when we come to God. After all, he created us and our minds. But it does mean that our minds and our thinking have to constantly be brought to God. Why? Because our minds and our thinking have got coloured and shaped by the world that we live in, by the ideas we hear around us all the time, by the stuff that society around us tells us, this is normal, this is okay, this is great. And common sense might say, yeah, it is, but actually God is saying, I, I know that's what you're hearing all around you in your culture, but that's not the best way to get the best out of life. For example, one of the things that will come out in Proverbs is the importance of fleeing like heck from adultery. Now, the culture in which we live in the West really says, sleep around, what does it matter? You know, sex is just a recreational activity. 
that would be common sense to agree. But God's wise words say, flee from adultery. Flee from the adulteress is one of the words that we'll find in Proverbs. Why? Because God's best way of enjoying sexual relationships is between one man and one woman in a relationship of marriage for life where the sex continues to bind them together rather than is something that you do. So it's far more than common sense. It's common sense sanctified by God and occasionally tweaked by God to end up doing exactly the opposite of what you might have thought you would do. So these wise sayings come out of sort of practical experience, but where have they come from? I mean, who's pulled them all together? The book opens by saying the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So many of these Proverbs are indeed by him, but although the whole collection of Proverbs is ascribed to him, we know from the book itself that that isn't the case because we will be told later on that there are the sayings of a guy called Agur, for example, in chapter 30, or the sayings of King Lemuel in chapter 31, or earlier in chapters 22 to 24, there's sayings from a group of people called the wise. So the book itself tells us that there are a number of contributors to this book, but probably the main one of which was Solomon, which is why it's ascribed to him at the beginning, And in which case it helps us understand something of this book, because the time of Solomon in the 10th century BC was a time of of great peace and prosperity for most people. So it's a time of affluence, we might say. And of course, with affluence, which can be a blessing, it can also have a curse if you don't handle it right. So there was a real need to handle life and live life wisely so that you didn't make wrong choices in a time of affluence. And so perhaps that's why this book particularly still has relevance for us today, because, you know, for most of us in the West, we do live in an affluent culture. And, you know, even if we've lost our job in most societies in the West, there's provision from the state to at least help us through that time. So, There's some really good wise words here for just be careful in a time of comfort and affluence not to let that take over and and to, to go that way rather than looking for God's wise ways to handle all these things. And Solomon, of all people who became king, was the very person who asked God for wisdom. So God gave him that wisdom. And I guess some of that, as you say, has been brought together in the Book of Proverbs. Yes, and I think it spills out, and you're right. When Solomon encountered God in a dream, and God said to him, ask me for whatever you want. Wow, I sort of put yourself into that one, and I think, what would I have asked for? But Solomon said, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to govern your people. And God went on to say, well, because you've asked me for wisdom and not for wealth and riches for yourself, I'll give you the wisdom and the other stuff as well. So... What we are getting here is supernatural wisdom from God. At times it might seem to cut across culture, but it is wisdom out of the heart of God for us, for life applied in a very practical way. I mean, what kind of areas of life then does Proverbs cover? Well, there's a whole bunch of areas. I mean, it's almost perhaps easier to tell you what, what doesn't it, cover 
I mean, for example, it, it covers things like uh, family and marriage, home, the workplace, the dangers of laziness, addresses the issues of poverty and justice. Uh, it addresses things like our manners and our attitudes and so on. So it, it, it really does cover a whole breadth of life in many, many different expressions. And the whole nature of Proverbs, perhaps we could just say this at this point, is they are, by and large, short, very short, pithy sayings, maybe just a verse or maybe a couple of verses at a time. And then the next one is on a completely different topic. So when we come to read this book, again, this is one of those books where it's not always helpful to read great big chunks because you've had 20 wise pieces of advice. But a good way to approach this book might be to read very short sections at a time, along with other parts of the Bible that you are reading. And maybe to take one of the verses or to read a little section until you come to a verse that really hits you and you think, ah, that's one I really could do with thinking through a bit more at the moment and then reflecting on that. Well, let's have a look at some of the examples, some of the ways in which the... Proverbs address real life? In some ways, perhaps the easiest thing I can do is to say, well, here's some of the Proverbs that have helped me in my role as a pastor and church leader over the years. Because very early on as, as a young pastor, I came into contact with an older pastor who had built much of his pastoral ministry around the book of Proverbs. And he would recite Proverbs to you left, right and centre and would draw on these. And from these, he'd found wisdom for his life. So I'm just giving you a few examples here for how it's helped in my own life. Different people will have different stories, for example. But, but let me just pick one or two out that have helped me as, as a pastor, but I think have wider application too. So Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, actually, that's applicable for everyone, not just pastors. But when I think of the number of times that maybe people have come at me with something they feel really strongly about and have gone for me, and we all know what it's like when someone attacks you verbally, what do you want to do? You want to get defensive. You want to attack back. But Proverbs says God's wise way of dealing with that is give them a gentle answer. It will turn away their wrath. It will dissipate like sand through their fingers. A harsh word just stirs up anger. So that's certainly one that I've had to use many times. Just a little later in that chapter, plans fail for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. So as a pastor, when I've come up with my latest brilliant idea for taking the church forward, you know, it's been good then to go and share with your leadership team to say, look, I'm thinking about this. God, I think is saying this to me. Can we pray about this together? What do you see are the good points here? What would you change? What needs shaping? And again, that is something that can apply in absolutely everyday life. If I turn on to chapter 26, and verse 20, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. And as a pastor, you're in a great position to know all sorts of stuff. And you could gossip about all sorts of things. But just learning, it's about just 
Keep your mouth shut. Don't gossip about things, even if gossiping about it would protect you, because that will help the quarrel to die down. Again, that's not just a word for me as a pastor, but can apply to so many, many people. And for me, here's one in particular for a pastor, 27, 23. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Now, that was addressed to a pastoral culture, people who literally had literal flocks and herds. But to me as a pastor, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. What's that tell me? Get out among your people. Don't just pontificate from a pulpit. So there are just a handful, David, that I've given you of some random proverbs that I've been able to apply for my role as a pastor over years that have been incredibly helpful practically and have guided the way I have built. And there are many, many others for many other sorts of situations that if we will take them, we can say, yeah, I want to work that into my life and so see more of the wisdom of God in the way that I am fulfilling my role. Work that into your life, because it would be easy to think as you read the Proverbs, I guess, well, that's a nice thought. Yes, and maybe a nice thought, or maybe even to say, oh, that's a nice promise. And I think that leads us to comment on a, a particular issue about these Proverbs. They're not, how can I put it? They're not magic. They're, they're not automatic. They are, how can I put it? They are observations rather than guarantees. For example, there's one of the proverbs that says, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich. Well, that's generally true. It is a general observation in life that if you are lazy and can't be bothered to go out to work and care, you are more likely to end up poor. Hard workers get rich. Well, the truth is that can be true, but we all know there are people who work incredibly hard, often long hours, multiple jobs, who never get rich and who struggle to make ends meet. So they're general observations on life rather than concrete promises, because in a fallen world, you know, people sometimes get rich and Hardworking people sometimes get poor, but the underlying principle is correct. But I think it's important that we see these as observations, pointers, signposts of the way to go, rather than as concrete promises as such, because that's not how the Proverbs are meant to work. Sort of encouragements in a sense, are they, to at least try and see if that is how it should be. Yes, I think that's a really good word that you, you've used there. They are encouragements to walk life this way. And still the truth is that if you work hard, you are likely to do better than you are lazy. Now, I know instantly, you know, we can all think, well, I know someone, you know, who's not worked for 20 years and has just lived on state. So, you know, there's always an exception. And I think that's what I'm trying to say. There'll always be an exception. But these are still pretty good encouragement. They're still good rules of thumb, they're still good things to build your life around, whether you see immediate blessing out of them or not. Amongst the examples you've already given, there seems to be a kind of style, almost this black and white contrast. Yes. 
Proverbs does have a particular style. Basically, most of them are just one verse. They're punchy, and it's like they have a this and that, a this or that, a this, not that. And so that's a style to look for as you're reading through this, often quite a contrast. And the contrast is often, not always, but is often between what happens when you don't do it God's way and what you do. So, yeah, when you read, look for the contrast between them, because that helps just unlock the proverb and and what you are looking for. So short, punchy sayings, generally just one verse, often built around contrasts. How else does Proverbs talk about wisdom? Well, it's really fascinating. Wisdom is clearly like a major theme of this book. In fact, right back at the beginning of the book in chapter one, if I can just read you a a few verses there and and then I'll expand and, and get to answering what you've just asked. Chapter one of Proverbs and verse seven says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. In chapter three and verses five to six, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So there's this constant appeal to the wisdom of God, to what I said earlier, to God's wise ways, wise knowledge, wise heart. Why? Because he was the designer, the manufacturer, the planner, and therefore he knows how these things work best. But there is a section in Proverbs where something really fascinating happens with this idea of wisdom and where wisdom is so seen as integral to the very being of God that everything God does is wise. In chapter 8, we have a whole chapter given over to wisdom, and this is really the lengthiest section in the book, and it's all about wisdom, but wisdom is personified, to use a technical term. It's almost seen as a person in its own right there alongside God. And so wisdom in chapter 8 calls out from God, talking about what wisdom is, how it operates, who it blesses. But let me read a little section to you, which is really quite fascinating. From Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22 onwards, we'll read this. The Lord formed me from the beginning before he created anything else. I was appointed in ages past at the very first before the earth began. I was born before the oceans were created, before the springs bubbled forth their waters, before the mountains were formed, before the hills. I was born. Before he had made the earth and the fields and the first handfuls of soil, I was there when he established the heavens. 
when he drew the horizon on the oceans. I was there when he set the clouds above, when he established springs deep in the earth. I was there when he set the limits of the sea so they wouldn't spread beyond their boundaries. And when he marked off the earth's foundations, I was the architect at his side. I was his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence. And how happy I was with the world that he created, how I rejoiced with the human family. Now, you can hear there what the author has done. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he has turned wisdom into a person. I, I was there. Wisdom in the first person. And he was there, this wisdom was there, when? From the beginning, before creation, there with God. Why? Because it is an expression of God. But something's starting to happen here that would be a process that would continue. It, it's almost like that wisdom, it is God and it is from God, but it, it's almost like a separate person from God. And something interesting happens because over the coming centuries in Jewish tradition, they will become fascinated by this idea of wisdom as a person, wisdom as an intermediary almost between God and man. And you can see in all of that, the Holy Spirit, as it were, preparing people for this idea that the New Testament will reveal to us that there was someone with God from the beginning, one that it calls not the wisdom, but the word. John's gospel opens, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's as if God has prepared them culturally over the years, over the centuries, for this idea that there is one who is God but is distinct from God, who is the wisdom of God, who comes to apply it here on earth. And it's like by the time we get to the New Testament, we're able to say to a Jewish people who by that point were really expecting the wisdom of God to be among us. And here he is, and his name is Jesus. So in a strange sort of way, this passage here hidden away in Proverbs chapter 8 about wisdom is starting to sow the idea of one who would come, who had been with God from the very beginning, the Son of God himself, the Word of God, who would come as God's wisdom lived among us. And it goes right back to this passage here in Proverbs. So with that sort of personification of wisdom, does that help explain why the opposite of wisdom is referred to sometimes as the fool. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it will say to us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. My goodness, that would leave a lot of people in the fool category today, doesn't it? But it's exactly that. It is the very opposite. The fool is the one who says there is no God. There is no one who created all this and designed it and masterminded it and know how it functions. And I know best. I, the human being, am the sole arbiter. That's the essence of humanism. But it's foolish, the book of Proverbs tells us. Foolish because it neglects the creator God who was there 
and who alone knows best. You know, if my car goes wrong, these days I do not even consider lifting the bonnet to look underneath. When I was young, if it went wrong, I would gladly lift the bonnet and there was loads of space and room under there and lots of things that you could tinker with and do yourself. These days, we all know it's not even worth it. There is so much under there that's electronics and all balanced. Who is the best person to fix my car? Well, it's the people who made the car. It's the people who designed the car. So I take it back to the manufacturer where it was made. They've got the plans. They've got the diagrams. They've got the experience. They've got the wisdom. And they can fix my car really easily because they know how it's meant to function. Now, the wise person understands that's how it is with us and God. The fool thinks he can lift the hood, the bonnet, and fix it himself. How does the book of Proverbs finish? Oh, it finishes in an amazing way. There's a couple of collections of authors other than Solomon. So chapter 30 is sayings of this guy called Agur. Uh, chapter 31 is sayings of King Lemuel. But then there's what is often put in many of our Bibles as a sort of epilogue at the end of the book, which is often headed the wife of noble character. And it's this fantastic portrayal of wisdom demonstrated through an incredibly godly and gifted woman. Now, again, put this back into the context of its time where the movers and shakers of life were the men, where the leaders were the men. And against that sort of cultural context, this passage about what a woman does is incredible. Let me just read a, a little bit of it since you've raised it. A wife of noble character, who can find? She's more precious than rubies. A husband can trust her. She will greatly enrich his life. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. Now, unless we think, oh, yeah, this is the picture of the wife staying at home, isn't it? No, it's not. She's like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her household and plan the day's work for her servant girls. Well, that still sounds a bit homey, doesn't it? Hang on, I haven't finished yet. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. And with her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Wow. In that culture, this is incredible. This is an expansive, wise view of womanhood that sees her, yes, as fulfilling the cultural norms and duties of home, but as having far more in her than that. She's energetic and strong and a hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamps burn late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning threats. She extends a helping hand to the poor. She opens her arms to the needy. She's no fear of winter for a household, for everyone has warm clothes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She laughs without fear of the future. And when she speaks, her words are wise. So here is a powerful picture of the ideal wife. It's almost saying if you really want to be wise in life, you look for a wife who, yes, is not just a good companion, and yes, who 
doesn't just cook and clean, though we know in our culture it may be the men who are doing that just as much as the women these days. But this is an empowering, envisioning picture of of a woman who is also a a dealer and a trader and, and using skills, and she blesses the poor and has a has a big heart. Now that's the sort of wife you will look for if you are really wise. The book of Proverbs ends by saying, because charm is deceptive and beauty does not last. That's a wise word for today, where looks are often praised as the highest thing. Charm is deceptive and beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. What would be your best approach to making the most of of the Proverbs? Well, I think read it in small chunks because even reading six verses might have given you six different ideas. Read it in small chunks. Meditate on the one that leaps out to you or that speaks into your situation, but then really take it and look for, okay, so what does this mean for me today? How today am I not going to be the gossip, but how am I going to pour water onto that situation rather than oil that I came up with yesterday when all this was happening. So look to apply it to life. And perhaps I can just end by taking you back to one particular proverb because it speaks of, if you like, the value of this book that guides us to the wisdom of God, to God's wise ways of living life. At the end of Chapter 8, which was the chapter we spoke about being all about the personification of wisdom. Proverbs 8, verse 34 says, Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. There's a blessing in taking time each day to listen out for the wisdom of God. And of course, you can find that throughout the whole of the Bible, through stories and laws and gospels and letters. But here in this book, just by taking a proverb or two a day at a time, picking one out, chewing it over, thinking, how can I apply that? There is great blessing in stopping at wisdom's door, in listening to it, in waiting to get an understanding of it, and applying it to life. So don't tackle the whole thing. Tackle it in small, bite-sized pieces. Learn to apply it to life. And honestly, my own experience and testimony is that I have found this book come to my help again and again and again. God's wise ways for living. Mike Bowment has been talking to David Tavener. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes, through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.